So just that, I guess the resistance or momentum, if you will, that, that prevents us from pivoting uh, in a sense that we can jump from one application to other in, a, in an extremely quick way. So wh when I think about the word, there's another layer to this as, as well, right? Instead of pivoting the technology, we also think about pivoting the business model. When Neptune started, we actually did seriously think about what is the right business model for us, right? Do we want to be licensing our technology away or do we want to ultimately be the one that's making the end product? All right, Aaron, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to Waterloo Grit. This is our periodic podcast where we have amazing founders and folks connected with the startup ecosystem on the show. Hopefully we have hundreds of founders and wannabe founders listening and trying to learn from your story and hopefully uh, be at the end of the show will inspire a few to turn entrepreneurs. So welcome. Thanks for allocating time. Great, Jay. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And this is very interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you. Fantastic. Let's kick it off with your story. Often the founder's story is far more fun than the startup story. And so I would love it if you can share how it is that you came up building Neptune Latin. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'll try to compress my 32 years of existence into two minutes. I come from an immigrant family. I came to Canada at 12 years old with my parents and, you know, Asian parents, they always wanted me, um, you know, my mom wanted to, me to be a doctor and my dad wanted me to be a lawyer. But I actually wanted to start a business and it's for a really, really silly motivation. And it's actually embarrassing to talk about it, but I was a teenage boy and what do all teenage boys like, right? Um, sports cars. And my favorite car was McLaren SLR. And I ran the math and I realized I cannot even afford this even on a doctor's salary. And uh, so I had to start a business and the. Uh, it wasn't going to be any business, right? It couldn't be a lemonade stand. It couldn't be a restaurant because I have to think about the scalability side of things. And as a 16 year old, like I had a really basic mind mindset about scalability. And in my mind, two things scale really well, capital, money, and technology. I sure as hell didn't have any capital. So it had to be technology. So at 16 years old, I knew I had to invent something and convert that into a business. I just had no idea what technology, how to even run a business, but that was actually the path that I set myself on. With that mind, I uh, went to University of Toronto. I did both a bachelor's and master's out of their engineering program. And this is where I had my first exposure to nanotechnology in general. So I actually founded my first business shortly after graduating my master's. And it was also a nanotechnology business. And I spent all my own money bootstrapping the technology. So I actually had to ask my dad to pay for my first patent. And uh, I was actually able to raise $800,000 from a long-term family friend. And the company was actually pretty successful in the sense that we, we took a lab scale technology all the way to commercialization. And we were actually selling to the market by the tons. Like a ton of material, if we were talking about like concrete or steel, it's not that much, but it's a nano material. So it was actually a pretty significant amount. And uh, it was also success successful in the sense that we got, I got seven patents filed and also made the Forbes 30 under 30s list. 
ultimately, the business was a failure because two fundamental mistakes I've made basically at the very beginning of my journey. And it was trusting the wrong partner and the wrong investor. And second, it's not a not having enough understanding or knowledge of creating a right corporate and shareholder structure to protect myself. So after we tasted some success in the first company, uh, the investor actually thought that he could take everything for himself. And he was actually able to pick me uh, out of the company that I founded using the powers I've signed away to him uh, in the first place. And yeah, that basically happened. And of course, the previous company failed as soon as I left because he really didn't have the knowledge on the technology or the market. Basically, this was a six-year journey between 2014 and 2020. That's like my first business and the whole breakout fallout saga happened during really 2020, the height of COVID. And uh, after like the first failure, right, I had to go back. I had to reflect and lick my wounds, if you will, and, and really try this again. Because in my mind, I already did it once. It's almost successful. And I had no resources back. And now I'm armed with knowledge and I'm like pretty well connected after that experience with the, the startup community and the investor community. So I thought I definitely have a much better shot at doing this again. So that's in 2021, where I was basically living off of my wife's salary and bootstrapping a new technology. And it turns out bio nanotechnology development, despite as fancy as it sounds, you can actually do a lot of experiments in the kitchen. And it's a lot like cooking. And, and it turns out that you, you could do some really neat stuff in the Instapot. And yeah, I really abused her Instapot. We, we weren't able to get something off the ground. And we obtained our first investment in early 2022. And we've right now, we've actually built a proper research and pilot facility, uh, 2,000 square feet in Markham, Ontario right now. And uh, we are currently wrapping up our $2 million seed round. It's mostly subscribed and we're on track to close by the end. So that's sort of my journey compressed. And that story is Fantastic at so many levels. Before we drive deeper into some of the things that you shared with us, and thank you for sharing that, by the way. Well, sure. The first reaction that I have is how long have you been married? Ed? We married in 2019, shortly before COVID, but we've been dating for uh, four years before that. Fantastic. The fact that you ruined an Instapart, put your wife through a little bit of stress and duress, and you survived the relationship, I think is far more endearing that the Neptune Nano story. And I know you and I were chatting offline just before we started. And one big takeaway for entrepreneurs, and I don't think you'll get this advice a lot, but I can relate to your story to the degree that if you were to share some advice with entrepreneurs, it would be, if you have a partner who has a steady income, it allows you to do experiments with or without the Instapod. And I think that does indeed go a long way. And the joke that I share is a fixed income equity portfolio is a fantastic relationship. I think exactly. But yeah, the moral of the story is to marry well, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. One of you go do entrepreneurship while the other keeps a steady job. Quick question, Eric, before we get into Neptune Nano, and I'm, I'm just fascinated by what you guys do at many levels. On the advice, if you were to dish out based off of the, I don't want to call it failings, but the challenges that you experienced, what would you share would be the top two pieces of advice? I know you spoke a little bit about the type of investor, um, but the fact that you bounced 
fact so quickly, especially during a time of, you know, global pandemic is extremely interesting. So what would the two or three things be that you could share with the founders? Well, in terms of the bounce back, um, well, when I started the first business, I came in really um, completely blindsided to, to really any aspect of startups, any aspects of legal uh, corporate structure or governance. But it's something that you quickly learn as you go. And you realize I already made that mistake and you try to like re-engage and learn fast and iterate fast. Back then, the mistake was made, but the company and the technology had momentum. So I carried it through and I was able to engage with a number of investors and other people in the community. And after the failing of the company, what's interestingly is the lead investor of our current Neptune round actually wanted to lead our Series A back in the old company. They ultimately pulled out after diligence and they were not comfortable with the corporate structure, but they were very fond of me and the technology. When this fallout happened, they were the ones that actually took a little bit of a mentorship role to me and encouraged me to like to rebuild. And once we actually had the initial set of technology proven out, they actually did put where uh, their money, where their mouth is and actually supported us and they're leading this round. So I guess the first lesson is know what you don't know and try to learn as much as possible and really engage with the community. The second lesson uh, really is lawyer up, right? It's the right structure in place, right? There's obviously there's trust, right? Yeah, even with my first investors, he was a long-term friend. So there's a lot of trust already built, but um, you ultimately always need the right legal structure too to keep the morality in check, if you will. So I guess that's sort of the two piece that I want to take away. Awesome. Quick additional question related to that. As an immigrant, when I first started in the U.S., one of the things I realized was when you go through failures, the culture that potentially we come from does not really allow us to celebrate failures, celebrates wrong choice of word, be open about it, right? Thoughts that you can share the learnings from that failure and be able to build based off of the fact that you shared those failures with the rest of the world. Did you struggle with that concept through the lens of being, you know, from an immigrant family or that didn't occur at all? It definitely occurred and uh, I still struggle with this. It's really after the falling of the company, there, there's basically a sense of emptiness, right? It's six years of your life completely blown up in front of you and you have no idea what to do next. And there's definitely a wave of self-doubt and regret. And, and that actually hit me for like several months, right? And so during this period, again, Mary well have a really supportive wife and family. The emotional support is absolutely wonderful. The, the number two thing is uh, you got to internalize the failures. It's something that, that you eventually learn to pick up, right? And be forward looking. What has happened in the past has already happened. And if you dwell in the past, right, it's completely pointless, right? Take what you can, learn what you can, move forward. It sounds easy to say, but it is definitely something I've struggled with and for quite, quite a few months. I'd say almost for the better part of half a year after the first, the failing of the first company, I've struggled with this. Got it. Yeah, I can 100% relate to that. I think the first thing that I went through as a struggle, so in my case, I had a successful startup um, which exited and then went through a startup that failed. And the challenge that I had was this massive internal issue of trying to get past this wall called the ego, 
Where did I fail and why? And the in sermon mountability of that woman was, was insanely challenging. And like you said, the fact that there's nothing to show after years of toil was like a struggle that I went through. Switching topics a bit, you know, I spent some time reading up about specifically nanomaterials to be reasonably prepared for this conversation. And I came out thinking I have no clue. It would be awesome if you could walk us through the power of nanomaterials and then eventually get into, you know, even within nanomaterials, how you are fundamentally different and how did you arrive at that juncture to to be in a position to have chiplin nanomaterials and why is it different from nanomaterials? Okay, sounds good. Well, uh, we probably need to walk back a little bit and talk about and define what nanomaterial is to begin with. And nanomaterial is basically just a really fancy way of saying it's really small. But then again, nano is important because a nanometer is a billionth of a meter, right? It's all, almost atomic size. So we define a nanomaterial as a material that has feature sizes that can be appropriately measured on the nanometer scale which means that it's, it's actually appro approaching atom atomic level and uh, molecular level. And um, because of this, nanomaterials can actually come pretty close to um, the theoretical limit of uh, the material's property. To take the walk back and look at an example of a normal material, right? Steels, concrete, it cannot reach its absolute uh, uh, material performance potential because of a number of things, right? There can be internal flaws, internal defects, micro cracks that exist in the structure that's causing the material to fail prematurely. But if you reduce the material size down to the nanometer scale, it's already so small. There's essentially no room for any of the internal flaws to exist, which uh, basically effectively allows the, the material, whatever it is, a lot of materials can be made nanoscale, nanofeatured. But the, uh, what effectively uh, you get by doing so is you boost the material performance close to its uh, theoretical levels. Chitin nanocrystal is exactly the same thing, if you will, and it is waste derived. It is uh, derived from fishing waste. And specifically, we're talking about crab shells, shrimp shells, and lobster shells. And we were able to uh, extract it in a almost perfect single crystal form, uh, nanoscale again. And because again, all of the uh, nanoscale feature sizes and almost the atomic level perfection, it exhibits extremely powerful properties in a sense that you have little shards of crystal that comes from uh, crab shells and it is stronger than steel, it's lighter than plastic and it's entirely biodegradable, right? It hits uh, both the performance side and the sustainability side perfectly well. And for us, the, the one way to use nanomaterials, and um, it's important to point out that you can't really build a table, for example, purely out of nanomaterial, right? We use the nanomaterials as sort of a physical additive into a bulk material, and you're imparting the superior performance into that material. Uh, in our case, our nanocrystals can be added to uh, various applications, all kinds of uh, industrial applications, such as packaging, composites, adhesives, or even biomedical applications. And uh, the nanocrystal can significantly boost and enhance the fundamental material property. So th th that's sort of the, the benefit of nanomaterials in general. And if I were to walk back and look at our competitive landscape, we have a bio-based nanomaterial and we sort of compete with um, 
two categories of materials that's out there in the market. Number one, it's the, the traditional chemical additives that's used in all kinds of plastics today. And the other being what I call traditional or legacy nanomaterials, uh, in a sense that it's not bio-based, but it's still a fascinating class of materials. And uh, what makes chitin nanocrystal unique is it, it straddles both the extremely high performance of nanomaterials, but it does not come with any of the environmental or toxicity drawbacks of the traditional or legacy nanomaterials. And, um, Overall, it is also significantly better in the sense that it's much more powerful performance-wise compared to chemical additives. And again, it also serves as a replacement. And again, that's a, a bio-based and sustainability angle to this. Got it. Thank you for that brilliant explanation. You know, when you look at deep tech, and in your case, you are closer to deep science than deep tech. Most times, innovation may not necessarily lead to entrepreneurship, but in your case, clearly you've articulated the, your, your own internal desire to build a, uh, an enterprise based off of the innovation. And oftentimes in deep tech, the second issue, once you've crossed the barrier of innovation, lending itself to be entrepreneurial is here's a great piece of science or technology. And now to go figure out a challenge that exists in the market. Sometimes it also happens the other way, right? Here's a challenge. It's a global issue. Let me go get inspired by biology and come up with a solution that could potentially be a chitin nanomaterial. Which of those two paths was your story? Most definitely. Uh, you don't want to be in a situation where you create a fancy widget, a new technology, and you're trying to look for a problem that it can solve. We the, in our particular case, so we definitely want to be in a position where we are solving a problem that the market uh, specifically demand. And in our case, I think it's definitely the, the second point where we are creating a solution that the, um, that, that the market wants. Effectively, what came about is uh, it's actually uh, this Kitan story goes back as far as my uh, master's research back at the University of Toronto, where we are trying to make plastics completely sustainable. And we, we do have a biodegradable plastics. And the challenge with biodegradable plastics is, uh, sure, it is bio-based and completely sustainable, but it lacks the physical and mechanical strength to be used in durable applications. So what is the right method to enhance the properties, right? And uh, with nanomaterials, people have uh, in the past used carbon nanotubes, graphene, or various other kinds of non-biodegradable nanomaterials to enhance the performance, but it increased the performance, but it also lost the sustainability angle. And that became the problem. So we were looking for a, a nanoscopic type of solution that is also fully sustainable. And I don't know if you like seafood. I like seafood a lot. I struggle with cracking open a crab leg, right? I didn't have the tools. I want dinner and it was like really fumbling on trying to open the crack, crab leg. And like, why is this damn thing so, so tough to break open, right? It turns out that after some research, there's this thing called phytonano crystal that already exists, the shells of crustaceans. And it's actually being reasonably studied to a degree in literature. But there has never been a way to fundamentally extract and isolate this nanocrystal in, in any commercially viable way. And the challenge there was the nanomaterial is 
essentially buried in a matrix of other materials that's chemistry, chemically completely identical. So how do you identify the crystal structure and how do you use a means that can sort of target the nanocrystals while removing the non-crystal forms of chitin? And this is something that uh, we were ultimately able to figure out. And this is basically the, uh, the foundation, uh, the fundamental technology that became Neptune today. And that's amazing. And is it fair to then state that the actual, uh, I guess two questions. One is the actual raw material that goes into the value chain before a significant product comes out is actually leftover crustacean material. Exactly. Awesome. And is it essentially waste and there's millions of tons of stuff that's yep. uh, basically getting dumped back into the ocean. Yep. Yep. Well, that, that was actually my second question. What, ha what yeah. happens before Neptune Nano showed up? What, what happened to this material? Did it go back into the ocean? The vast majority is actually dumped back into the ocean, right? Coming from fisheries that make canned crab and shrimp that's deshelled. Most of the shells do actually uh, are shipped back and dumped back into the ocean. It is fully biodegradable, so it's completely fine in that sense, but it's also a waste of resource. What's interesting is like nature and shells is really fascinating in the sense that there's another material that you can extract out, out of the shells called chitosan, and it can be used as a nutritional supplement and it has antimicrobial properties. So uh, there's actually a existing supply chain that already goes out and collects these shells and essentially purifies them. And what Neptune is able to do is we can tap into the supply chain we can acquire the purified shells, we can extract our nanocrystal and sell back our residuals back into the supply chain. So in, in that sense, we're essentially almost getting the, the raw material completely free and, and it's, uh, it's a perfect loop. It's a no waste loop. Correct. I think you answered one of the questions that I had, which was most times the challenge with material science innovation, especially when it tries to penetrate an existing value chain is trying to tell, obviously, the properties of malleability, better structure, lower price, lower weight, etc. But also, the, one big challenge is to try and change the existing value chain, which has been there for years, right? So when you go in and tell your incumbent value chain slash customer that, and listen, I'm going to give you this amazing new property, which has new material that has all these properties. But you've got to change your value chain to be able to accommodate me. It sounds like you've cracked that piece as well with this adjacent piece of IP. It, it, it is definitely very challenging. You can have the best technology in the world and they can bring uh, all kinds of value, but you can't go to a customer and saying that buy this, it's amazing, but you got to rebuild your plant to, uh, to accommodate this. It's just not acceptable and it's not any uh, viable way of doing business. Sure, we have the piece that, that uh, we have a proprietary technology that extracts the nanocrystal, but a huge piece of R&D is to be able to convert the nanocrystal in a directly usable form for end customers. And there, there are like essentially two key target applications we're targeting, and we can go into details on this if you want, but one of them is plastic packaging. And if you look at the plastic processing chains, it's huge machines, right? Blow molding, that's three, three stories tall. You can't reasonably expect them to change that. Your only position to come in is you have to position yourself as an additive that can be added alongside an existing stream, and you can't really physically change their process all that much. 
So a lot of R&D does go into making a product form. Actually have some here. We can actually load the nanocrystals. These are just plastic pallets loaded with nanocrystals. All the end customers needed to do is buy this from us and essentially dump it into their existing manufacturing system at an appropriate mix ratio and, ex and to extract this. And it's completely the same for a, another application we're focused on, which is the epoxy composite structure. And again, it's a concentrated type of solution where it's the nanocrystal that's already loaded into the epoxy resin. So, right, we have to match the reality of the market and we have to do the development work to make the end customer easily be able to use our product instead of having them adapt to us. Yeah, it, it, I find it unbelievably fascinating that you've cracked all this <laughs> since you started in 2022. You're clearly making it sound like it's easy, but g give me a sense of how did you arrive at those two use cases? It's, I'm sure you went through a ton of iterations before you cracked those two. It's definitely not easy and, and it's definitely more than a year in the making. As I mentioned, the genesis of the technology goes as far back as my master's degree and I've worked continuously with U of T and uh, e even my previous company is very much related in the nanomaterial space. So I'm coming in with a lot of experience. I understand the market. I've been almost 10 years into the market. I've collaborated with the universities and this is something that's almost a decade in the making. It's just that now we are almost ready to truly commercialize. But there are two things, uh, how we arrive at our target application. There, there are really two things, uh, two layers of filters, how we, we target the application, right? If you look at the nanocrystal itself, right, it can be added to all kinds of plastics, all kinds of rubbers, right? It's extremely risky to try everything and be completely distracted and not be able to land on any of the applications. So the two fundamental filters we apply to our process is we have to understand what the market truly needs. And in our, in both of our scenarios, the packaging side, there, there has been a challenge in between trying to balance the performance, the barrier properties to preserve the shelf life of the packaged goods versus the recyclability. This is like the biggest challenge in the packaging world. And it turns out because the nanocrystal has a impermeable crystal structure, we can impart impermeability into a recyclable film and make it non-permeable as well. So we sort of crack that recyclability angle to this. And so it's definitely a, a real demand in the market and we have a real solution. And it's the same thing for epoxy. Epoxies are used in a lot of structural composites, right? Automotive, aerospace, both the strength and stiffness, as well as its toughness, which is the fracture resistance. So they are equally important, but traditional chemical additives, right? You can only choose one. You can't have both. You can't have a material that's both strong and tough at the same time. But it turns out with nanocrystal, once again, we've cracked this. The nanocrystal itself is stronger than steel. So the strength piece is easy to understand. And the toughness piece is if we figured out that at the nanoscopic level, if we can disperse the nanocrystal really well, it actually acts as like tiny shards that prevents crack from penetrating through. And because of this mechanism, able to achieve high toughness as well. So, so these are really what the market needs and we're building a solution to the market. And secondly, we also have to understand the chemistry of the chitin nanocrystal itself and the material it's made it to, right? With nanotechnology, nanomaterial development, the surface compatibility, the chemistry and the, uh, the dispersion 
is extremely challenging. But with the with someone that has the knowledge, we can go and figure out, say, and hey, this material is probably more compatible than the other options, and this is probably an easier path to go. And it is definitely the case uh, for epoxies, and this is why we're going head first into epoxies. It is both a real demand from the market side and from the technology side. It's also the easiest to achieve, if you will. Easy in a relative term. Yes, yes, absolutely. I can imagine. If you touched upon a variety of things that most entrepreneurs in the traditional, and by that, the non-deep tech space, stumble upon because the market forces them to. And usually that's what's characterized as a, as a pivot, if you will. In, in the deep tech space, I would imagine two things, right? One is the, the time it takes for a piece of technology or a piece of science to get to market is fundamentally longer and therefore you need a longer runway and therefore more capital. And talk to me a little bit about how you've got to stay patient while operating on that long runway and not subconsciously forcing yourself to pivot to be able to attract capital. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, especially that are deep tech on the hardware side, do it, right? So if you stay the course and you don't, you know, you run out of runway and you sort of think of, you know what, I'm going to go raise money. And then you start to operate on the principles of trying to raise money as opposed to trying to stay the course. Was that a struggle for you? And how did you overcome it? The funny thing that you mentioned this, because it's actually not a struggle and it's actually the nature of the technology that we are actually, it's actually pretty difficult to pivot in a sense that a pivot for us is we actually do have to go back to the drawing board and do the fundamental new development and develop a new application to target something else. That is years of effort. So just that. I guess the resistance or momentum, if you will, that, that prevents us from pivoting uh, in a sense that we can jump from one application to another in, a, in an extremely quick way. So wh wh when I think about the word, there's another layer to this as, as well, right? Instead of pivoting the technology, we also think about pivoting the business model. When, uh, when Neptune started, we actually did seriously think about what is the right business model for us, right? Do we want to be licensing our technology away or do we want to be ultimately be the one that's making the end product? For example, a, a nano crystal enhanced glue that you can buy from Home Depot, for example. What we arrived at is sort of in between those two. And the reason we're not going in the, in the licensing type of play is because it is a new technology. It has never been proven on industrial scale in a sense that there's no existing facility anywhere in the world where we can plug our technology into and start producing nanocrystals. So there is the first hurdle that it's something that we have to overcome ourselves with our own pilot. That's number one. And number two, if you look at on the other side, do we want to make the ultimate end product? We don't want to be extremely asset heavy. It's not non-agile. It's not great for startups. And we want to stay within sort of our, or, our own core competency, right? We know nanocrystal, but we don't necessarily know as much of, about the glue market. So, so we sort of landed somewhere in the middle where uh, we are focused on the nanocrystal. We produce the nanocrystal and we produce uh, essentially additive forms of nanocrystals and that can go into all kinds of market. And the value, the nanomaterial itself, it is an additive. We only add 1% into a ultimate end application. So 
there is a disproportionality between value and physical quantity. So we can be physically quite small, even in mass production, but the value derived from manufacturing nanomaterials can be very promising. So it's our balance between staying our own core competency and also being, relatively speaking, asset light. Got it. Makes a ton of sense as you, as you talk through. I would imagine that the intellectual property that you have is not necessarily confined to just the material, but also a big chunk of it isn't the science that goes behind the manufacturability of the material into those two use cases. And if that is indeed the case, did you, by design, go and look for investors that strategic in nature as opposed to institutional, financial institutional in nature? That's a really good point. And it's a great question. And look at the major chemical businesses, Dow, DuPont, or even ExxonMobil, all of these large businesses. They all have their venture capital arms, and this is what I would call strategic investor. We really thought about this, and the value coming from the strategic investors are they are in the ecosystem. They are potentially end user of your product, or they can add your product into their portfolio. And there's great value beyond money that they bring on board. But there's also risk in a sense that um, if a company that's at the seed stage we are vulnerable to the direction that the investors can dictate us, right? We don't, ultimately, we don't want to be giving away too much power too early on to prevent pivoting in a direction that we don't necessarily like. In our specific case, we're again, walking on a balance. We, we actually raised the majority of our fund. They are they're still very much deep tech focused VCs, but uh, they're not necessarily associated with a large uh, entity and consumer. We were able to raise the financial resources we, that we need. We can build up and establish our company a little bit and essentially to have more bargaining power. And for the investors, we're absolutely interested in bringing them on board, but perhaps at a slightly later stage, Series A or later, where we actually know who we are, know what we are uh, capable of and know what our bargaining power is. And this is sort of where, when we become a lot more market ready, this is where the investors can add value, but the risk of having them dictating us becomes more minimized. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a ton of sense. And I think it begs the follow-up question, which is if you look at the current investment landscape, specifically in areas which require larger pools of capital, and I'm sure you've experienced this. It often takes the same amount of time and effort to raise a hundred thousand versus a hundred million. And with that in mind, would, you know, did your investment compass ever tell you to go raise a much, much larger round than the seed round that you're raising? now? To be fair, there is actually, of course, more money is better in the traditional sense, but there's also a risk of raising too much so that you don't know what to do it with. And uh, of course, when we're at an early stage, the technology nearly isn't as mature. The valuation isn't as high. Raising a large round has a significant dilution risk. So what we did, what I did in, in, in my mind is I sort of map out the milestones that I need to hit in the next 18 to 24, which in, is in the sense that we want to be able to prove that we can mass produce the nanocrystal and we can produce sufficient quantities to, to engage in commercial scale trials, walk back to the map, how much of a team do I need? How much of a facility do I need? 
to arrive at the amount of money I need. And, and then I can simply walk back and say, I need $2 million, for example, and I'm comfortable giving away 20%. And uh, this is basically my, my uh, mental calculation that actually became the basis of our race. So we, we felt that this is sufficient amount of money to get our, uh, us to the next set of milestones without giving away too much. I've sat on the other side where entrepreneurs have pitched for funding based off of their ability or perceived ability to try and attract customers, right? And the cost of capital that goes towards attracting customers is often really looked and frowned down upon by the investors, as opposed to the investor looking at a thesis that says, listen, there is demand and I'm just raising just enough to reel that latent demand back in. And when that happens, I'm going to see an explosion post product market shift. And then I'm going to go race here. He said, that is such a better narrative. And that's exactly what we are spelling out here. Right. And I think there should be no reason why investors are lining up at your doorstep, given what you pulled off in such a short span. Uh, thank you for bringing that point up and shameless plug. We are wrapping up the 2 million, but we still have some room. So as an investor, uh, drop me a line. I'd be happy to talk. Absolutely. We should stretch this conversation beyond the podcast for sure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. A related note, do you ever struggle trying to articulate what you bring to the table to financial investors who potentially have us, you know, are not used to seeing deep tech conversations with deep tech founders? Is that a challenge? It's definitely a challenge. And of course, uh, during our raise, we had to talk to all kinds of investors, right? They're, they're generalists and they're specialists. And obviously the conversation is much more comfortable with deep tech focused VC. And it's something that I'm, I'm still working on struggling with is really being able to articulate the, the depth of the technology in a way that's very much relatable. And it, it is a challenge that I've struggled with. This is why in our particular case, we are more successful raising from more tech focused VCs than the generalist, for example. It's something that I'm working on, working on the communication skills and trying to hone in the language and the story. And this is the right juncture, which I throw in my because Shane's black and go. There's this great program called the Venture Studio, which of course you're part of. But, you know, that being said, I do think there is, you know, if you look at traditional venture capital models and the traditional accelerator incubator models, the challenge with deep tech companies is both those models, I personally believe, are not well suited to help, you know, ideators and innovators build their business. I do think that venture studio models are the best models for deep tech, largely because of A, the flavor of capital needs to have a lot more patience than traditional venture capital. And the other, as you know better than I do, that what it takes to build a venture out of deep tech surely needs to have an ecosystem flavor, right? It really takes the village. And I think that's where studio models play a very interesting role so you can get pieces of expertise from all across. We're running out of time and I would love to take this forward. A couple of parting words of wisdom, having been through this journey for a decade like you did. What, especially for deep tech and science-based founders, what would be the two pieces of advice that you give to early stage founders who are looking to build something from a lab? What would that? The first thing is you got to have patience, right? Deep tech, hard tech, we, uh, the development cycle is much longer than 
the yeah. other more software-based startups. So you really got to have patience. That's number one. Second, uh, you have to talk to, to, to the marketplace, right? You don't want to be in a position where you're fascinated by your own technology, but you fail to communicate the needs of the market and you end up creating a technology that's looking for a problem. Be able to integrate both. And uh, I think that's extremely important. And the second thing is it's actually echoing to the first, uh, not just the, the market, but also the venture community, right? There is a lot of resources that can be accessed by a startup founder. I'm personally a very technical type of person. I don't have nearly as much knowledge in the marketing side or the vehicle side, if you will. But a lot of these resources are available if you know where to look. And obviously AC is fantastic. So know what your limitations are and go out and look for the help that you need. I think that's a two piece I want to take away with. Awesome. I couldn't uh, agree more in terms of those two pieces of advice. Aaron, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm walking away from this podcast having yelled a lot more than I did when I got in. So tip of the hat to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing the wealth of wisdom and really look forward to spending more time with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, it was a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, Nader. Take care. Bye. Great. Take care. Bye-bye. Waterloo Grit, an Accelerator Center podcast, is sponsored by the David Johnston Research and Technology Park and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by Bluemax. For more Waterloo Grit content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.